Welcome to the wonderful world of wine, exploring all things wine with you. We are your hosts, Kim Simone and Mark Lenzi, and every week we talk about topics in the wine world. You can find past episodes of our show on iTunes. Mark, I want to know, what did you Google about wine? Well, Kim, this week, you be familiar with this because you were a salesperson in the past, but every once in a while, you'll see a description in the wine world for a job, and it says you're required to lift minimum 50 <laughs> pounds, right? Sure. So I noticed, and I move a ton of wine cases, but on the every case of wine, it tells you how much the weight is of a wine. Do you ever notice that on I the cases? I don't think I've ever noticed that. So it says 750 milliliters times 12 equals nine liters, right? So they right. measure case quantity in liters. So when a manufacturer is selling, they'll say they sold a million nine liter cases. So 12 750s is nine liters. That's 25 ounce bottles. It weighs 36.8 pounds or 16.7 kilograms. Yep, so that sounds about right. in a case, that's what you're getting for weight. And it's heavier if it's sparkling wine. Because so the, those bottles are heavier. Thicker glass, yeah. Thicker glass, yeah. What about you, Kim? What did you Google uh, this week? I Googled this week some pronunciations for some Italian wines. Uh, and not just the wines, but the producers, the different regions. Uh, Italian wines can be somewhat confusing for consumers, I think. And and people's pronunciation is all over the map. And are you I, looking at me? I'm not looking at you. I'm actually <laughs> looking away from you. Uh, no, this this had nothing to do with you. All right. <laughs> but I, I've noticed that it's, it's not an easy language for people to wrap their brains around, especially if they learn Spanish in school because they look so similar. And yet there are some very key pronunciation differences that sort of people get a little hung up on. So, yep, pronunciation so for Italian words. What's one example that um, I say wrong? That you say wrong. Bras- bruschetta. Right. It should be bruschetta. But everybody says bruschetta. So I don't really have too well, much of a problem with bruschetta, that. Well, I was saying bruschetta. Oh, for bruschetta. bruschetta. That's right. It's really anything with the letter C does sort of get people um, confused because C-H in Italian is a hard C. It's a K sound. And C followed by either an I or an E. Most people will make it sound like an S, but it's actually supposed to sound like an English C-H. So if you have a word that say, oh, there's a um, wine that we tasted at the end of the year with our friend Chiro that was called Cipressi. That means Cypress. And that's C-I-P. So a lot of people pronounce that Cipressi, but it's actually Cipressi. So the trick for, for me, Kim, in Italian is just put your hands in motion. That's right. Just talk with your hands. distracts people from the that's bad right. pronunciation. That's right. So news from the world of sparkling wine from specifically Spain. We are talking about a break in the labeling laws for the sparkling wines of Spain, which traditionally have been called cava. Cava is a designation mostly based in the Penedes region of Spain, but you can a winemaker can make cava from really anywhere in Spain. But there are nine producers of higher end cava that are trying to break away from the cava designation and have 
their own label and their own, you could almost kind of call it branding uh, for their better wines because they want to separate themselves from some of the bigger producers. So this has been building for a little while and is now um, a new thing that we will start seeing on sparkling wine labels out of Spain. Yes. So this article was in the drinkbusiness.com, which we get a lot of material from. And interesting, Kim, I found out that this is a brand and they're calling it Corpernat. And they wanted to start a brand. They they didn't agree with some of the things of the Cava Dio because the Cava Dio is basically made up of three huge producers right. that are producing most of the stuff. And they said, we want to separate ourselves from these guys who are making massive amount of regular Dio Cava. So we want to start our own brand. They call it Corpernat and they want to separate from the Cava Dio. Mm-hmm. It, but at, to be looked at as a more quality right. version of Cava. Right. So they really want to differentiate themselves from these more mass-produced sparkling wines out of Spain and be like, hey, if you see this name on the labels, you know, you won't see Cava anywhere on the label, but it's this—it's a similar style, but it generally should be higher in quality. So they're trying to say that, okay, all of our grapes are only grown in a very specific region. It's more focused on the quality of the soils. Um, and they're really pushing for a lot of organic agriculture for this this new Corponaut labeling. Yeah, the, the term actually Corponaut, you had mentioned before, Penedes region, it means the heart of the region. So I, I think that's a good start for a term that means something to mm-hmm. the brand. The Cava Dio was formed, I believe, in the 70s. Uh, this brand of the Corponaut was formed in 2015 and it has been accepted by the EU. So I think we're going to start seeing releases soon because the aging standard covers nine months on the lease. This will require 18 months on the mm-hmm. lease. So it's fairly new. It's going to take 18 months for it to be released. Right. And it's it does sound like it's going to be, you know, with this real focus on quality, on you know, hand harvested fruit and more traditional. Like they really seem to want to get back to traditional Spanish grape varieties and this idea of sort of a classic style with attention really to to good quality. I'm I'm wondering what the what the pricing structure is going to be. Because yeah. that wasn't something that was really brought up about all right, how much is a bottle of Corponaut going to be versus a bottle of, say, Cava from one of these big brands. Yeah, and I couldn't find any being sold yet. From the nine producers, I think there were four producers that are actually in the state of Mass, but none of them are listing this brand yet for sale. Um, You mentioned, Kim, they will have to be 100% organic product, uh, hand harvested, no bulk wine. So the the big cava producers are basically taking grapes from growers from all over the cava D.O. And the cava D.O. can come from, is it seven regions? It's it's massive. It's scattered out through all Spain. a lot of Spain. So it's not one little spot in Spain. It's it's multiple areas of Spain. So this has to be uh, no bulk wine from any outside the area. It has to be 75% of grapes grown by the own by the winery. Indigenous grapes and only 10% of non-indigenous grapes. So a higher percentage of indigenous grapes as right. well. So it sounds like good quality. Mm-hmm. And it sounds almost a little bit like what champagne does. You know, this idea that, okay, your designation also sort of functions as a brand identity. You know, there might be, I think in this case, we've got nine producers that are going to be producing Corponaut, but that term is, I think they're thinking, going to function as sort of a brand. So that if people become familiar with that term and associate 
associate that term with quality sparkling wine from Spain, then they might seek out these other producers that also produce the same style of wine, the same type of wine. Just like if you know that you like Veuve Clicquot champagne, you see that bottle of Moet right next to it also says champagne, you know that you're getting something similar quality, similar style. If you like Cava, the end, actually the end of 2019 is when it'll be officially released. So mm-hmm. you'll start seeing, you won't see the Cava DO on the label, you just see Corponat. Right. So you'll know that's a higher quality. And I don't, I didn't see anything about Reserva levels or anything like no, that. No, Just neither. one level. And that may be something that develops as they figure it out. I mean, with any sort of new endeavor like this, they're, they're going to hit bumps in the road and they're going to have to kind of figure things out for themselves. So I'm sure that there will be adjustments and changes, but something to look out for. So for those sparkling wine drinkers who want to try some good stuff from Spain, keep a lookout for Corponaut on the labels starting in about a year. You're listening to The Wonderful World of Wine, and we are your hosts, Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone, exploring all things wine with you. If you'd like to get more information about Kim, please go to her website at vinitaswineworks.com. If you'd like to get more information about myself, please go to franklinliquors.com. If you'd like to follow our show or send us a message, find us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. Next, we want to talk about an article that was in thedailybeast.com about Italian wine, Kim, and some are under investigation for what they say using cheap grapes and fancy wine. I can't believe the Italians were trying this, Kim. <laughs> You're saying that sarcastically, yeah, aren't you? Yeah, This is an issue that pops up in the news every once in a while. I feel like every couple of years we get one of these articles where there's either a major sting operation or some sort of investigative reporting of inferior grapes, or not even necessarily that they're not the best quality grapes, but that they're not what they say they are. So it's not that it's crummy grapes coming from, say, southern Italy and being put into something from northern Italy. It's not necessarily the quality of the grapes and the quality of the juice, but that they're trying to pass themselves off as something that they are not. So it's using less expensive bulk grapes and then putting them in, say, a Brunello or a Barolo, some higher-end, prestigious style of wine that then sells for a whole lot more money than that bulk wine if it had been bottled with transparency from where it really was, would not have sold anywhere near the level of, of pricing as as these other wines. And this wasn't a small amount of companies. No, this seemed 50, like a massive operation. companies, mostly in northern Italy. And like you said, Kim, they're saying it inexpensive or cheap grapes, but they also... I didn't want to use that word because well, I know you don't they said like cheap in the article. We always say inexpensive. <laughs> but they, they stressed they're inexpensive grapes, but they're not bad for you to consume. Right. And I, that, so. that was very interesting that they brought that up. And you know, it's not like... Because there have been other sort of scandals in the wine world in recent decades about things being added to wine to change the flavor that were very dangerous and led to injury and death. So I, I, I thought that that was very interesting that they sort of like... Don't worry, don't worry. It's not going to hurt you. It's just more of being breaking the rules. And they also had to throw in that they didn't find any evidence that mafia was involved with this. So. <laughs> right. But it, it's it, like, it, hmm, that makes you sort of scratch your head. Like, like you said. Why we, do you bring it up? Yeah, we heard in the past 
a lot about how these things come up is each region in Italy is governed by the, the government obviously gives them a rating, but they have their own consortium that monitors that before it goes to that level. So there's a few people it has to go through, but I've heard stories where inspectors will come to the wineries in Italy and they'll just walk around and they'll look at the barrels. And sometimes if they're only supposed to grow, say, Sangiovese and the inspectors are walking by and they see Merlot in the barrel, which I don't know why they How would, would you see. know? They actually write on it, Merlot, which is, I don't understand why they would. Oh. Then they get in trouble because they have a grape they're not supposed to have. Right. But also I've heard where they walk in the fields and there'll be something growing that obviously stands out. It's not the grape it should be that they're growing. Mm-hmm. And they say, well, just wildly started growing. But they try to sneak <laughs> it in and blend it. So I've heard stories like that. But I mean, this was a huge thing where they track this bulk juice. And it might have something to do with, we talked about in the past, with climate change. Maybe they didn't get a, a great high of what they have to grow. So to produce a product, they had to put something in to put out enough volume. Right. And it's so important that they use those DOC or those DOCG names and qualifications on their labels because that goes such a long way for how that wine is going to be sold and how much wine, how much money that wine is going to, um, to command on the, especially the international market. So the difference between being able to label your wine a Chianti Classico Reserva other than, you know, instead of just Sangiovese and or or other grape varieties, you know, it, it could really produce a massive difference in how much money you can ask for that wine. So it uh, it makes a difference. And, and there's you know real reasons behind why people might be trying to bend these rules. And they didn't list of all the 50 companies, not one brand was mentioned. You notice that? Kim? I did. I not noticed that brand. all the time when they when they do things like this. And you, you, you read articles about, you know, sort of these exposés on food products or, or wine. And they're talking about, oh, this brand and this brand and this brand, but they don't actually name a brand. And I don't know if that's because they're afraid they're going to get sued. I don't know. I think in a way they're governing themselves, but they don't want to ruin the reputation yeah. of the of the people they're governing. That's the way I, I look at it. Mm-hmm. I think it's smart to say, hey, we, we're noticing problems, we're taking care of them, but we're protecting the people who are making a living producing the product. That's that's kind of the way I looked but at if it. if you're a journalist, why do you care? Yeah, you would think they'd want to I would think out. they would want to get that information Especially out if there. it's one of the big producers. You know, someone has to hate the guy, unfortunately, <laughs> to, to try to hurt him a little bit. You yeah, know? Well, this was sort of the same thing thing where I think it was a year or two ago, there was a similar sting operation about olive oil. Do you remember that? I have not heard that. Yeah, that was a in, couple in of years Italy. ago. It's like olive oil that was being exported that was saying that it was Italian when in fact it was Spanish and Greek and North African and other places that grow olives and make olive oil, but it was all being labeled as Italian or there were other things being blended in. So it wasn't 100% olive oil or it said that it was extra virgin olive oil and really it wasn't extra virgin olive oil. It was still olive oil. It was just a lower grade. And that was a similar thing. It was like all of these articles and they still, they didn't list a brand. And I'm kind of like, well, I want to make sure that if I go to my grocery store, I'm not buying one of these brands that you are saying is a fraudulent product. Like I kind of feel like if if you're out there putting this stuff out there for the consumer, give us all the information. It's good you mentioned food because our listeners might not be aware that the Italian wines and the Italian foods are are rated the same way. 
government rated in high level, low level, same terminology. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that is a, a big thing in Italy. Their food, they're very proud yeah. of it. So Yeah, so like cheese and, like I said, olive oil and vinegars and, fruits, you know, all those salamis tomatoes. and fruits and toma- tomatoes is a big one. Yeah, all those things. So, yeah, so sort of ongoing investigations. And these are the kinds of things that we like to find out and bring to you. You're listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. We are your hosts, Mark and Kim. For more information about Mark, please visit his website at franklinliquors.com. And for more information about myself, you can visit me at vinitaswineworks.com. A very interesting sort of scientifically based article that we found on a news site called Care 11, uh, which I believe is from the Midwest, is about hardier grapes that can survive colder weather. Um, And we talk a lot about climate change. We talk a lot about how vineyards have to cope with changes in the climate and changes in weather. And this article deals with how the grape varieties that we are used to seeing and used to drinking, you know, your Cabernet, your Chardonnay, doesn't do so great in areas that have really, really cold winters. And as grape growing and winemaking expands across the United States, especially to a lot of our more northerly states that have pretty harsh winters, that grapes need to be of a more hardy variety in order to survive there. So it was an investigation into different grape varieties and how new ones are coming about to withstand colder temperatures. Yeah, and big focus on Minnesota wine grapes. Now, it's not one of the things when I look for wine, looking for Minnesota wines. Right. <laughs> I've been thinking of it, but they mentioned Minnesota. And then I have checked because I was curious, okay, how many wineries are in Minnesota? There's actually 70 vineyards in Minnesota, and they have two AVAs or, or set government locations. Alexandria Lakes is one AVA, and the Upper Mississippi River Valley is the mm-hmm. second. So it's not like it's not recognized recognized by the government where they're they're focusing on certain areas, but they're just saying in this area, we cannot grow the standard cab, Chard Merlot because the weather is just too extreme. So they did a few things to investigate how they can grow things and produce wine here. Right. And what they're actually quite known for is uh, their grape breeding program at the University of Minnesota. So there are actually a number of places across the U.S. that they specialize in developing new varieties of grapes a couple places in California. And then there are a number of states, more northern states, that do a lot of this. Uh, in upstate New York, they do a bit too. Um, but Minnesota it has sort of come onto people's radars as being one of those really great grape breeding programs. Um, so they're developing a whole variety of different types of grapes that will withstand all sorts of climactic issues. So, you know, for, for their own specific uses, the, the, the colder climate hardiness is really important. But then, you know, we read a lot about, okay, how water usage is changing. And some places are becoming too dry, but other places are becoming too wet. And grape varieties, grape vines don't tend to like really a lot of water. So new grapes are being developed so that they can have root systems that can withstand wetter environments and then grape varieties that, that do a little bit better in in, uh, in those conditions as well. So I think it's pretty cool, you know, that we've got these, these changing reactions and adjustments to what we're seeing uh, in the climate. Yeah, once again, 
Michigan, this could be reacting early to climate change. Uh, they've seen some very cold temperatures up there. And you said the University of Minnesota, they created some 10,000 different vines or species. And like you said, Kim, it's, it's it, number one, it's important that it survives the extreme temperature. But number two, it has to taste good. It has to I mean, taste it, good. You can come yeah. up with all the grapes you want that survive, but when you produce wine, if it doesn't taste good, what's, what's it matter, right? right? So th- that was their big thing. And then sort of a leap from that too is, okay, you know, it has to grow well, it has to taste good, and then will people buy it? And I know there was another show that we did probably six months or a year ago that dealt with that same topic. It's like, all right, with all of these changing things and, and ways that grape growers and winemakers are reacting to changing conditions, how is the market going to react? If you have a bottle of Chardonnay next to a bottle of, say, what's Frontenac or, you know, some of these other new grape varieties that are being developed, I think they said um, Marquette was the was the only other one that I really recognized from the list they had that they had listed of these new grapes. Yeah, changing the consumer's expectation of what is on a label, what is in a bottle. There's got to be this whole like marketing plan in place, I feel like, to change consumer attitudes about these brand new grape varieties. So that is something that I always kind of have in the back of my mind when I read these articles about all of this new stuff kind of kind of coming along. And they do produce, or they're saying they make between 50 to 100 different wines every year Oh, it's test. massive. Yeah, so, they really I mean, do a lot, a lot of experimentation. Of they have about six varietals, as you, you mentioned, Kim, and they also say they must survive temperatures that go as low as minus 35 degrees. Ooh. So, I mean, those are pretty hearty grapes. I'm right? cold just thinking about it. What about, yeah, I was, when I first saw this and I saw some of the grapes, like you said, Marquette, isn't this related a lot to the New England states, northern New England states, what they're growing? Isn't Vermont, New Hampshire growing pretty much the same yes. that these people are growing? Yeah. And, and it, there's a lot of hybridization too. So, you know, in northern New England, you rarely see Vitis vinifera grapes, which is the the species of grapes that you regularly see for European winemaking. But a lot of the times it'll either be just native American grapes that are being used or what we call hybrids. So one parent will be an American grape variety and another parent will be a European grape variety. And that's what a lot of this experimentation is, is they're trying to combine and it's not really genetic alterations in a lab. It's actual breeding in, you know, in a greenhouse where you have, you know, you physically have two parent plants and, and you're combining them for a separate offspring. So it's a lot of that kind of experimentation to then figure out, okay, we like the genetics of this particular plant because it produces hardy grapes and they taste good and they're able to withstand whatever. So yeah, there's I, I, this whole hybridization idea. We do see a lot of that in northern New England as well. You mentioned a little earlier, Kim, about consumer. So, so they developed this ideal grape that will grow in these conditions. I think they're going to have a really hard time putting out Frontenac Blanc uh, next to a Chardonnay mm-hmm. and people perceiving that as something they, they want to buy. Right. It's something no one's, you know, first you're going to see Minnesota, then you're going to see some grape you've never heard of. It's going to be hard to compete with the Chardonnays and the Cabernets of the world. Well, that But that's if the playing field is even. Now, what happens if, you know, there are places where we regularly grow Chardonnay now that can no longer grow Chardonnay and overall 
overall, we have far less Chardonnay available for people. So there'll be less supply. The prices will be higher. And then wines like this maybe are what are there to fill the void. Because so you feel they're they coming get in. jumping on it early. They're going to perfect that's it. That's what and, I think. Yeah. yeah. So that they there will be viable grape species and grape varieties in the pipeline ready to produce good wine when we start to see that places like Napa can no longer make wine. That places like Southern Italy can no longer make wine. Places like the Languedoc can no longer make wine because it's just too hot. So I think we'll see. We covered in the past, we covered Michigan talking about their mm-hmm. adapting to the, I mean, now Minnesota. Have you heard of any other northern states? I mean, I kind of keep producing? my I kind of keep my ear to the ground for New Hampshire. Um, and there have you tried my, I've number heard of, fruit wines from New Hampshire. I've had a but. few grape, grape wines from New Hampshire. They're a little rough. Um, I, and I think because a lot of the time they do use those native grape varieties that aren't vinifera. When you say um, rough, you mean like that foxy type of... A little or, bit. Yeah, um, funky. A little <laughs> funky. Yeah. A little um, just, yeah, not smooth and, and clean the way that, that we expect our wines to be. But the flavor profiles are different too. Um, I think where we do see that success is in some of those grape variety hybrids. So something like Seval Blanc, which I actually am really a big fan of, that grows fairly well in Massachusetts. So something like that, I think if, you know, if there are grape varieties that have almost a family resemblance to something else that we like to drink. Like Savoie Blanc is similar in to my palate to Riesling. So I feel like it's a natural progression to, oh, okay, this is a grape variety that grows a little bit better in a in a climate that we have here. And hey, if you like Riesling, give this a try because you might like this too. So as we find these new grape varieties that will uh, maybe produce nicer and uh, and that there's plenty of, of it out there, then people will start experimenting and, and trying to find some new favorite. We've been your hosts, Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone, exploring all things wine with you today. If you'd like to follow our past episodes, please find us on iTunes or SoundCloud. And if you have any questions or comments, please send them to us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. Cheers. Cheers.